available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome back, everybody, to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham, publisher of uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we make up the Podcast of Champions, talking Pac-12 football. That's what we like to do. We're going to continue our deep dive series today, this week. Uh, talking about the mountain schools, Dave, I'm excited to, uh, talk some Utah and Colorado. Yeah. We're going to wrap up the PAC 12 South and then, uh, hopefully starting next week, we'll move on to the North, but yeah, we get to talk about the, uh, the two mountain schools and we'll get to talk to somebody new today from Utah. Uh, Brian Swinney, uh, his, Actually, oh, sorry. What's up? Oh yeah. Okay. I thought you were talking, you said we're talking to Brian Swinney. Like, no, we're not talking to him. Yeah, no, 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 not at all, not at all. We, uh, Brian Swinney has moved on from the world of sports. We're talking to Dan Sorensen today. Yeah, so uh, it should be it should be interesting if you follow him on Twitter. He's got that yay taco uh, avatar. It's kind of funny to look at that. Um, we got some questions too, so we'll get to those at the end. We're going to talk Utah first, uh, Dan Sorensen, and then uh, Adam Munster Tiger. We'll talk Colorado next. And we'll answer some of your questions. And if you do have questions, please keep emailing them to us. We're doing shows every week, so there's no reason for you not to email. Pac12podcast at gmail.com. We got a bunch of emails. We've got also a bunch of tweets. There was a lot of Twitter activity over the past week and a half or so since we had Greg Biggins on at Pac12podcast and our website where you can find all of our old shows and our contact information and all that. Pac12podcast.com. And if you would like to leave a voicemail, that's great too. You can call us at 641-715-3900, extension 734-972. Please rate us on iTunes. Leave us some positive feedback, something cool. We, we Have you looked at our uh, any of the uh, feedback yet on iTunes, Dan? Yeah, we haven't gotten a written review in quite some time. Oh. We are up to about a hundred. I think the last time I checked was about a week or two ago, and we were at 107 ratings for four and a half stars. So we dropped down from the perfect five star rating, which I see as a general insult. <laughs> um, but we are still uh, doing pretty well. Just uh, haven't gotten a written review. In a couple of months. Well, let's but do that. Yeah, go out and give us a written review, people. That would be that would be nice. But I assume, Dave, it's because we're like the the far and away market leader that sometimes they want to keep us grounded, so they're not going to you know give make it all gushing praise. They want to give us a four star every once in a while just to to keep us honest. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And then also, I think um, so uh, the the UCLA people um, on the bro board where I work. Uh, they got annoyed with me uh, from our last show uh, because when we were rating the different head coaches in the Pac-12, uh, we both agreed that Chris Peterson was a unanimous five-star, and I didn't give Chip Kelly equal billing. Oh, that's so tough. they got they got a little upset with me. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, I, I you shouldn't be upset. He's the far away, like he's the guy that everyone wanted. You know, it's. You got the guy that everybody wanted. 
I think that you should just be happy with that. Like, you know, I don't know. It, he could be a unanimous five star. I, I think he's going to be good. I've said that many times, but I know there's, there's concerns and there's like, Oh, you know, it's a different world now. Everyone's using his offense, all that kind of stuff. He, you know, some failures in the NFL. I think we just have to wait and see. You get, you get a big time coaching hire. Don't let anybody, no matter what Dave says or I say or anybody else say, get you down, UCLA, because I think he's a home run hire, but you know. Well, the yeah, in the and, and I don't like it's one of those things where we were like, I mean, we're offhand answering like a kind of a and this is no offense to the question asker, kind of a dumb hypothetical on this podcast. And then somebody calls me out for it on the message board. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to develop a rationale for that thing that I said <laughs> out of like two minutes of thought and I'm going to provide it for you. And like now that I think about it, I'm like, yeah, Chris Peterson's been doing what he does for what, 11, 12 years Chris Peterson had one four-year – Chip Kelly had a four-year run at Oregon. I mean, if we're judging on longevity, you, you got to give a little bit of a tip to the Peterson, even if you say all results were more or less equal, yeah. right? I, I would agree I mean, with you longevity. There. And, yeah, Chip Kelly could get there. He could, you know, churn out, you know, an incredible 10-year run at UCLA, and then we're – this isn't even a conversation anymore, but it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, we've seen Chris Peterson do it, and we haven't seen Chip Kelly in college for a while. So I, mean, I think there's reasons to say it's not like this unanimous five star, but you know we don't have to rationalize. Like you said, like you just that's something you thought up in about seven seconds. You said two minutes. I would probably say about fifteen seconds for me. Oh, but you know. I, th- I think you talked first, and so I was able to uh, <laughs> oh, I was okay. able to formulate some thoughts. Nice. All right, Dave. Enough Chip Kelly talk. We got to talk some football. We're going to start with Utah, the Utes. Uh, Dan Sorensen is going to join us right now on the line. You can follow him on Twitter at D S O R E N S E N, uh, Ute Zone. He's the publisher for Ute Zone. So welcome, uh, Dan to the podcast. Thanks for coming on and looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Dan, uh, it's our first time talking to you on the show. Um, great to have you. And we're starting you off, uh, you know, super in depth with a lot of stuff <laughs> about Utah. Um, so figured we'd just jump right in. Um, I think we emailed you these questions beforehand, but just to reiterate for everyone, this is our deep dive series where we're going through all of the different schools in the Pac-12 from a resources, recruiting, politics standpoint, where they stand um, kind of in that hierarchy. Um, and this is from our uh, good uh, listener, Hifflede Almond, um, and he starts off uh, asking about resources. Um, so I'll ask these questions to you, Dan. Um does Utah have enough money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high-quality coaching change if it wish, if it wants to? You know, and that's a really great question, especially when you consider the fact that at this point, college football is basically an arms race, and, and you're seeing, especially driven by the mostly by the SEC. And and you know, the Big Twelve and the Big Ten and, and the Pac-12 are, are are trying to to keep up. With, with what's going on there. Um, for, as far as Utah is concerned, for the most part, I think that they do have the financial resources to compete. There are some things that they're lacking that other Pac-12 fan bases uh, or, or other Pac-12 programs um, have at their disposal that Utah doesn't. And so I'll, I'll kind of go down the list of, of what Utah has and what they, what they don't. Uh, so first and foremost, well, when you're talking about facilities, Utah's facilities are – 
as good as anybody's in the country. The the football facility was opened just around the time that the Utes joined the Pac-12. At the time, it was arguably the best facility in the entire country. Um, you know, state-of-the-art locker rooms, state-of-the-art weight rooms, uh, you know, everything that you would want in a football facility in terms of dining room and, 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 you know, barbershop and game rooms and film rooms and all of those types of things that impress recruits that, you know, though Utah has, has that. And, and on the basketball side of things, their basketball facility is even better than their football facility. I mean, the NBA teams come in and practice in this thing and are jealous for what the Utes have from a basketball standpoint. So wow. from a facility standpoint, they're doing pretty well. You know, it's, they're, they're checking off the box, and that's not going to be the thing that's going to hold, hold the Utes back. Um, in terms of, of budget and donors, I think that that's somewhere where they don't quite keep up with the rest of the Pac-12. They've got a smaller budget than most other athletic departments. And, and really, from donor base, they've got a much smaller donor base than, especially when you're considering the big whales, the, the, the big donors, the Phil Knights of the world. Utah doesn't really have that. Uh, I think the, the, the biggest equivalent to that was John Huntsman Sr., who, uh, of course, founded the, the Huntsman Cancer, Cancer Institute in the U and is, is a, a chemical magnate, and he passed away a couple of weeks ago. And so it, it remains to be seen, you know, how much his family will be involved in terms of donating to Utah athletics. But, you know, they don't really have a lot of big donors in, in terms of, of being able to raise funds in, in a really fast manner. Um, I mean, they're doing all right. They, they're doing enough to compete. I think the last question that was asked was, was about, you know, whether they had the money to make the quick token change. And, you know, that's not really something that I see Utah doing in, in terms of philosophy and, and the way that their athletic department is run they're, they, um, they're, I don't want to say they're miserly. I don't think that that's quite fair, but you know, they're very thrifty in, in how they do things. And, you know, they'll, you know, I, I don't see Utah being able to come up with $20 million to buy out a coach uh, because they're not quite happy with, you know, a bunch, a string of seven and six seasons. It's just not, it's not really the death department operates and it, it's really not something that they're in a position to do. Well, Dan, the uh, the good thing is there's really no reason to replace uh, Kyle Whittingham right now. I mean, he's uh, I think believe ten and one in bowl games, and Utah's the only team that won a bowl game for the Pac-12 this past cycle. So I I don't see any need to be you know replacing a, a Kyle Whittingham at this point. But interesting uh, thoughts on the facilities there. Yeah, and with Kyle Whittingham, you know he's the longest tenured coach in, in the conference, and one of the longest tenured coaches in the country. And you know at this point, you know he's quickly approaching legendary status at Utah. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't see a need for a buyout for him in, in the near future. As long as he wants to coach at Utah, he's going to. One, uh, one follow-up question I've been asking everybody is, you know, we ask this in the con, we asked that first question in the context of program goals. Well, what are those, you know, for, for a school like USC, the program goal is obviously to compete for a national championship every year and to be at the top of the Pac-12 and so on and so forth. For a school like UCLA, for example, I think the reasonable program goal is more like compete for a conference championship every few years and hopefully be in that national conversation every few years. Um, what what do you what would you say is the reasonable and realistic program goal for Utah football? Well, first and foremost, it's to win the Pac-12 South. I think they're the only South team that hasn't done it to this point. 
aside from maybe in Arizona or in Arizona State, I'm, I'm not sure if they've won it yet. But you know, they've finished second so many times, and they've had opportunities where they've been able to be in the driver's seat, and they just haven't been able to finish things later on. And so, you know, the, the big, the first first goal is always win the South, and I think that that's something. Even doing it, you know, once every two or three years, or once every four years, is is something that. Is, is a somewhat reasonable goal. You know, a Pac-12 championship, of course, is up there. You know, and for a long time, it's felt like Utah has been on the cusp of things in that regard. They've drastically improved their recruiting from the last five or six years. It seems like every single class that they have for the last several years has been the best class in program history. And when you look at the the rankings, and, and even when you look at the depth of the class, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, taking a flyer on as many guys as, as they have in the past. You know, a, a lot of times it's the guys that are at the bottom of the class that are going to provide you with your depth and, and, and your overall program athleticism. And, and they've improved that every single year. And so, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, from a facility standpoint, you know, they're catching up to the rest of the conference, but, you know, I, as a Utah guy, as a guy that's followed the program for the last you know, 20 years, you know, it, it's hard to say, but they're, they're just not, they're not there yet. And until they, you know, contend consistently for the, the conference championships and stop playing the spoiler role, which is what they've been doing for the past few years, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard for the rest of the conference to take them seriously. And, and so, you know, they've got to get over that hump. They've got to win the South and they've got to, you know, compete for, you know, a Rose Bowl. That's a good segue to our second question. If we're you're cool to move on to that one, Dave. Oh yeah, let's so, do it. So recruiting, does the school, do they, does Utah have the first pick of the best recruits in its area, and how valuable is that pool? And then, how is the school thought of by national recruits? So, <laughs> that's a, a com- complex question. Utah is in a unique position in the Pac-12. I think it's the hardest school to recruit to in the entire conference, mostly because most people that live outside of the state of Utah thinks that everybody that lives here has horns. And then I've lived in California and other places. You know, they just, when the national perception of Utah is a, is a strange place full of strange people that are ultra-religious, which isn't necessarily the truth. But that's what the perception is, and perception is reality. When you look at local in-state recruiting in the state of Utah, for the past four or five years, um, it's been one of the, the, the better states in the entire country in terms of producing top-level talent. They're producing multiple Army All-Americans per year, multiple four- and five-star recruits every year. The, the big issue, and it's, it's something that really that – really, bothers Ute fans is the Utes have had an almost impossible time keeping the top players in state home. When you look at this last class, so number one player was Panay Sewell signed with Oregon. Number two is Junior Angelau signed with Texas. Number three was Cameron Latu signed with Alabama. Number four was Taki Taimani who signed with Washington. And then number five was Cameron Cooper who signed with Washington state. And so, you know, when you, and those were all of the four stars for the last year, and, you know, the, the, the prior year, number one player in the state was J.T. Fele, who, of course, signed with USC. And they had, you know, a number of players signing with, with Stanford and Washington as well. And so uh, that, that's, that's a big issue is that Utah's having a really hard time hanging on to the very, very top guys in state. And some of that is a cultural thing. I think that there's definitely 
something about people that grow up in the state of Utah that they want to get out of the state and experience other things. You see similar things with Hawaii, where, where the kids talk about how they want to get off the rock. Well, you know, in Utah, they talk about how they want to get out of the bubble and, and they want to go and experience other things. And the Utah coaching staff is, has made in-state recruiting a priority, and they do win some of those battles against the USC's, the UCLA's, the Stanford's of the world, but they don't win very many of them. A, a vast majority of the top-level kids that are in-state are going out of state, and that's something that if Utah really wants to take the leap to the next level, they're probably going to have to correct that. You know, strangely enough, you know, Utah, I think, has a better re reputation with recruits in South Florida than they do in state, which is which is kind of funny. They're starting to land ki good kids in South Florida. They're land they're starting to land, you know, some talented players in Southern California. I think USC and UCLA will always have the top pick of the Southern California kids. And there's nothing that Utah will ever do to change that. But they will be able to land, you know, the occasional, um, you know, the Jalen Johnsons of the world that, you know, could could go to a USC, but you know instead you know he went to a Utah or in this last class out of Arizona they got Solomon Enos where you know they beat out of Penn State and so they they tend to do a little bit better job selling the program on out of state kids and especially kids that um, that come in and take a visit you know it, it's I can't tell you how many times I've talked to recruits over the years where they decide they're going to take an official visit to Utah because they like the coaches. They're, they're not really taking them seriously, you know, but they want the trip and then they get on campus and they see what Utah is really like, what Salt Lake city and that campus and those facilities are really like, and all of a sudden the Utes are a contender. And, and so, um, you know, the more that they're able to, to, you know, get kids on campus, they're able to flip that perception. And of course, as you guys know, winning trumps all. So, you know, if the Utes are able to land that Pac-12 championship or to, you know, consistently win 9, 10, 11 games in a year, then, you know, a, a lot of those perceptions that are negative about the state are going to go away and, and kids, you know, are going to be much more excited about, you know, what an offer from Utah means. But, you know, they've made huge strides in the last five years, and I expect them to continue to do that. But, you know, from an in-state perspective, it's, it's a it's just a really tough situation because kids just don't want to stay home. And on a certain level, you know, I grew up in Utah and I can't really blame them on, on a certain level. Oh, I, I know um, BYU, uh, I know the hated, the hated Cougars of BYU, um, they, that they, <laughs> they can kind of get a boost um, nationally just from, you know, being an LDS university and getting kind of um, a little bit of attention in that respect. Does Utah get that kind of boost from just, you know, uh, Kids who want to, you know, come to Salt Lake City or, you know, families who have roots in the area just from, you know, from the religious element? A little bit. I, th I think BYU is able to play that card a little bit better than they used because they are officially affiliated with the LDS church. Right. And so they're able to walk into a, a Mormon kid's home and say, look, you know, you're, you're going to represent your church as well as, you know, representing the school, you know, and it's, you know, and, and the kids that are really true believers in the church, you know, it's almost like when they tell BYU no, they're telling Jesus himself no, right? And Which is a hard thing to do. And Utah, they get interest from the LDS kids, especially the national recruits uh, that, that are that are out of state, especially, but not to the extent of BYU. A lot of the kids, the, the ones that actually end up at BYU, it's their kind of legacy kids. Their families went to BYU. They were raised their entire lives expecting to go to BYU. Whereas Utah is able to walk into a Mormon kid's home and say, look, 
it, you know, it, we're in Salt Lake City. You're going to be able to meet a nice Mormon girl and marry her. You know, we'll support you on your mission. You can get a lot of the experiences that you would get at BYU without having to deal with the honor code. You know, they're, they're able to sell some kids on that. And, and they're successful on certain levels. You know, they get a lot of kids out of Southern California and um, especially that, that are LDS kids that uh, maybe that, you know, wouldn't have looked at Utah otherwise had they not been. Hey, Dan, I think some schools are looked at more as like, Polynesian friendly and there's been you know so such an impact on you know national you know college football but on the west coast especially of Polynesian players I was in Hawaii earlier this year for the Polynesian Bowl and that's just going to get bigger um more schools seem to be recruiting more Polynesian players is that does that impact Utah at all because I think they were one of the you know one of the earlier schools that had a lot of Polynesian players maybe before other schools did yeah, and that was really what turned Utah around as a program. You know, in the, in the 80s, they were not a good program, and they started to turn things around under Ron McBride in the 90s. And really, the, the big thing that he did was he was very, very active in recruiting Polynesian players. And there's been a strong tradition for the past, you know, 25, 30 years of Polynesian players coming to Utah, succeeding at Utah, moving on to the NFL or to successful careers outside of football, and and it's really a core element of the program. When you look at the, the, the breakdown of the roster right now for, for the youths, about a third of the players are African-American, about a third of the players are white, and about a third of the players are, are Polynesian. And so that's, you know, that, that, you know, a third of your roster being Polynesian players, that's a, that's a huge makeup of your roster of, of kids that are you know, from, from those cultures. And it's, it's just, it's a big part of the program. It's an important part of the program. You know, there are several Polynesian coaches on the Utah staff. They recruit Hawaii pretty heavily. Uh, certainly Salt Lake city is, is I, I think it's still the case that uh, uh, it's the, the largest Tongan population outside of the kingdom of Tonga is in salt in, in the Salt Lake Valley. And so, you know, you get a lot of the local Polynesian kids. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, the state of, of Utah is so good at producing football talent is because, you know, football is a very much a part of the Polynesian culture in the United States. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge for the youth and it's, it's a cornerstone of what they try to build their program on. It's something they take pride in. They have, you know, when they bring in recruits that are Polynesian, you know, they'll sit them down. They have a special presentation just for Polynesian kids that explains to them, you know, this is the legacy. This is how we believe in your heritage. This is, you know, what the culture is like and um it, it, it's just such a big part of the program and and it's it's really one of the things that that makes you know utah football under under kyle whittingham special in my opinion all right ryan you ready to move on to number three yeah yeah let's do it all right and then this is the politics section so does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration how would you describe the different factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders? Man, that, and that was, I saw that question when you emailed it to me, and that is a, a great question. Um, at Utah, you know, I, I know that there are some schools in the Pac-12 where uh, the academic side of things are not necessarily fans of the athletic department and the football program in particular, that is not the case at the University of Utah. The, the football program is seen as a, a huge marketing tool for, for the Utes. And really, when you look at the university uh, in and of itself, you know, since the Utes have been invited to the Pac-12, uh, um, applications to the, to the school 
are up in the range of three or 400% from what they were beforehand. And, you know, especially because Utah is one of the, the more affordable Pac-12 schools to go to. And so you're seeing a lot of kids from from within the Pac-12 footprint that are, uh, want to go to a big Pac-12 school. And so, and, and certainly, you know, Utah's is an attractive option to them, especially if they like the snow and they like to ski. So, and then the fact that the, so the fact that Utah is affiliated with the Pac-12 and, and, and that's entirely because of football, um, you know, the, the, the powers that be at the university, they understand that they understand that, you know, while yes, there's a lot of resources that are dedicated to the program, it's still an important component of the, of the university. It's a, an important component of how people perceive the university and the fact that they're able to align themselves with 11 other world-class institutions uh, it just, you know, it's, 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 it's a huge part of their marketing component in terms of getting new students in, in terms of getting development dollars into the program. And so, um, so football is an important component of the university. I don't, you don't see a lot of the people on the academic side that uh, maybe aren't big supporters of the, of, of the, the program or, or don't feel like uh, it's, it's an important part of, of the university culture. Um, Dan, so talking about that culture, um, have you seen it change at all besides like the, you know, the you know, admissions and all that stuff, you know, the, that's changed certainly uh, a lot more popularity for the school is just on the academic side, but has it changed at all? And, and do you feel like it could change more if there's the, the next steps taken, like you said before, winning the Pac-12 South and, and kind of getting over that hump, you know, potentially winning the Pac-12, but just winning the South and taking that next step? Well, yeah, when you look at things uh, for over the last 15 years or so, and I, and I started doing this roughly 15 years ago in terms of covering the team and the program, um, there's, there's been a, a huge change up on the hill, up at, up at the university. And uh, it, it's been really interesting to watch. You know? So, yes, there's excitement in terms of you know, the athletic affiliations, but you know, the University of Utah, they had a Nobel Prize winner around the same time that uh, they had um, the, the Pac-12 admission. And, you know, you're just, you're seeing so much development up there. You're seeing so much construction up there um, in, in terms of resources, not just for student athletes, but for students uh, in general, you know, and they, they, they're building programs up, up on the university that, that, that are just really cool. They've got some cool entrepreneurship programs that are going on and that are really tying into the tech community that's growing in the Salt Lake Valley. Um, and, and, you know, certainly it's, it's a harder school to get into. It's a more prestigious school. And so, and, and that part of that is with, you know, the rise in applications. And so it's just an exciting place to be right now. And, and that does, you know, spill out into, into athletics where, you know, for the most part, you know, we knew that there was going to be an adjustment moving to the Pac-12, uh, especially in football. But you know, for the most part, the youths have, have they've they've pulled their weight. You know, they, they they win their non-conference games in football. They win their bowl games, like we talked about before. Uh, they they compete in basketball. You know, they've they've won Pac-12 championships in baseball and in gymnastics and some of the other sports. Uh, you know, and so the, the fact that they're competing. And they feel, and, and it's not just like a, a little brother. Oh, you just joined, you know. There's, you know, they're a viable part of the conference, and 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 they're helping. I, in my opinion, they're helping to, you know, improve the profile of the conference, you know, out nationally. And and 
So the fact that they're doing that, the fact that there's exciting things going on on the academic front, the fact that there's, uh, you know, it's, it's a school that people want to go to. I mean, there's just, there's a buzz and an energy in the air around the university and around the athletic programs that certainly weren't there 15 years ago. It, it all changed with, you know, and, and it was driven by football. It all changed with, you know, the BCS Busters and the Fiesta Bowl and Urban Meyer, and then Kyle Whittingham doing the Sugar Bowl thing and then moving into the Pac-12, you know, that it it helped propel the university to another level. And it's been really cool to see. And, it, you know, this, this university, you know, has, has become in a lot of ways, the crown jewel of the state. And it's something that people in the state should be proud of. And, you know, and so I, for that reason, you know, I think we're going to continue to see support, especially on the, the politics side, as you were asking, you know, we're going to see support of the university and, and, you know, hopefully just bigger and better things. Cause everybody wins, at least in, in the state, everybody wins when, when they're successful. Yeah, it, honestly, like the, the way you would describe Utah, it sounds like the university in the Pac-12 that's maybe most aligned from fans to boosters to administration to academics with kind of the mission. And you can kind of see it. I mean, just my opinion, but like looking at the Utah, the two major teams, I mean, basketball probably, in my opinion, has the best coach in the Pac-12 and Larry, Kriskovi- Larry Kriskoviak. Um given the talent on that team for him to be doing what he's doing year in and year out is truly incredible. And then Kyle Whittingham, who's, I mean, Utah's, I mean, the most consistent program in the PAC 12 South, I think. And it's just a matter of time before they get over the hump and win the division. But I mean, what, what would be more consistent, Ryan, do you have any thoughts on that? I think Utah's probably the year, the team year in and year out. We're like, Oh, they're going to be, you know, competing for the division title, but they'll be one of the top three teams, no doubt. Yeah, I think they've been very consistent, and I think that, I think you're right on. Where we're, you know we all, we haven't talked to the North programs yet, we haven't talked to Colorado yet, but I would be I'd be kind of stunned if everything if all the ducks lined up the way it seems they have uh, for Utah. So yeah, that's been it's been really impressive, and and obviously Dan Dan, you know your stuff, you know, but I think I, I don't think we're going to get the same kind of like all of this stuff being on the same page at all the schools. Everyone has their problems. Everything there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it just seems like Utah has all their ducks in a row. Well, yeah, and, and from my perspective, you know, that's that's what it looks like. And, and obviously, you know, nothing is perfect and, you know, things can change. But, you know, I think that there's been a vision at the university uh, and there's been a vision in the athletic department. And the fact that the athletic department has worked so closely with the, with the office of the president of the university and, and there's been some changes in the president of the university. And so um, they've weathered those types of storms and, you know, just things look good. And, and, you know, it's, it's not perfect. You know, they, they, they've still got a lot of work to do in terms of improving their national reputation, improving, you know, what they're doing in the conference, winning more titles in, in the marquee sports, you know, so it's, it's not the rosiest picture in the world, but you know, it's a good time right now to be a Utah fan and, and a supporter of the university of Utah. And, you know, any, anybody that's, that doesn't think that, I mean, I, in my opinion, they're just being a Debbie Downer. All right. Well, that was Good our, stuff. yeah, that's our, uh, Utah Utes in depth report. I forgot to mention, hit that in the beginning. So, um, <laughs> Dan, I mean, <laughs> you obviously know your stuff, Dan. Thank, thank you so much for coming on. We look forward to, uh, talking to you soon. We'll probably try to talk to everybody at some point in spring football, which you said starts March 5th. So a few weeks away for Utah. Yep. It's, we're right around the corner and gearing up for that. And it, it should be a good time. Well, thanks, Dan. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Appreciate, appreciate your time. 
All right. Well, that was uh, Dan did a great job talking about Utah. We got to talk to another Mountain State guy. We're going to talk to Adam Munster Tiger. So he's the publisher of Buff, buffstampede.com. Follow him on Twitter, ADAMCM777. And we're, of course, going to be talking about Colorado Buffalo. What's up, Adam? How you doing, man? I'm doing excellent. How are you guys? Can't complain. Can't complain. We have our health. It's great. Living our lives. Uh, we want to talk some Colorado football and, I guess, sort of tangentially basketball, but mostly football. Um, uh, as we talked about with Utah, um, we emailed you over some questions um, from our uh, longtime listener, Hithle Almond, uh, kind of going through the, the guts of the uh, Colorado athletic program and football program. Um, so I figured we would just uh, jump right in. Uh, we want to start off with the resources question. Um, so does the school, does Colorado, have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high-quality coaching change if it wants? Yeah, so I would say the answer to this question is mostly yes and partly no. It's it's somewhat complicated. And I'm sure it's that it's that way with a lot of the Pac-12 programs where you're, you're kind of delving deep deep diving into a lot of this stuff. I'll begin by saying Colorado's in a much better situation, both in terms of facilities and finances, now than it was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Uh, you, you look back, Colorado opened the Dow Ward Center. It's the building that's on the north end of Folsom Field. All the way back in 1991, that, that was the year after the national championship. And from that point forward, for the next 16 years, the football program basically had no improvements to its facilities at all. Wow. So it wasn't until two. Yeah. I mean, it was just long, long overdue in 2007. They did have a $3 million practice bubble that was finally added to the mix, but I mean, it's crazy. You think back, they had no functional indoor practice facility up until that point, uh, until 2007. We're talking about Colorado here. It's not, uh, I mean, we, we do get 300 days of sunshine a year, which might surprise some of your listeners that haven't <laughs> been out to, to Colorado. But, I mean, those other 65 days are very bipolar here. I mean, you're talking snow, wind, sleet, rain, whatever, you name it. There's a lot of curveballs thrown at you weather-wise. So it wasn't until 2007 until they could even practice indoors if they needed to. Uh, that, I hope that puts into perspective just how far behind the eight ball Colorado was when, you know, just nationally the, the facilities arms race really started to heat up. And then, uh, you know, even that practice bubble was, was down a steep hill away from the rest of their facilities and they had to share it with other teams and club sports. So yeah, it was just unbelievable how far behind they were. Rick George was hired as their athletic director in 2013 and he, he almost immediately begins this, this massive fundraising effort to do a whole facilities overhaul up by Folsom Field. And uh, th there had been previous athletic directors that, that had tried to do something similar and, and, and due to different circumstances that they weren't able to. Uh, but Rick George helped raise over $100 million. And just given how bad Colorado football was and had been dating back to really the early 2000s, I mean, basically nothing short of a miracle to be able to raise that type of capital. The, the timing did help a little bit from a fundraising standpoint, just given that the Buffs had recently moved into the Pac-12. Uh, there, there's about five times as many CU alumni living in the Pac-12 footprint than there was in the old Big 12 footprint. So you could go on the road as the athletic director and go to Northern California and pull these, you know, Buff Club members together and, and rally up and, and get 
you know, support and, and raise money that way. So, so that certainly helped. Uh, the, the Champion Center, which it, it basically looks like a castle right next to, to Folsom Field now, and along with a, a state-of-the-art indoor practice facility, was completed and opened in 2016. So the fact that he was hired in 2013 and they were you know, cutting the ribbon on this facility in 2016, just three years later, is pr- pretty incredible. Uh, they even have uh, a sports medicine facility, pretty, pretty top-notch sports medicine facility, on the second floor of that champion center, their, their facility is connected to everything. And so they can bring a recruit in on a visit and they can tell his parents, Hey, if your son ever gets hurt, you can take him up there for an MRI. We can have his rehab right on site. So that's kind of a, a selling point that they have now with recruits. Um, so, so from a facility standpoint, Colorado is now up there with pretty much the best of the best. I mean, there's always going to be that outlier in Oregon that's on a gluttonous type of level. They're certainly not able to do that. But if you tour around it, it's super functional and, uh, it, it's every recruit that goes through there, you know, that's obviously one of the first things they bring up. Um, in terms of coaches and salaries, McIntyre got a contract extension and raise. After that 2016 season, obviously they win 10 games, win the Pac-12 South, and they reward him with that extension. And their contract, uh, their, their assistant coach salary pool is actually going to be over $3 million this year in 2018 for the first time in program history. So they've improved there. Uh, McIntyre's contract is still on the low end for a Pac-12 head coach. But I, th- that's more to do with just the fact that, hey, you've had this great t- 2016, but they've also had a lot of last place you know, finishes in the division. They want to see a little bit more consistency, more bowl games before they're going to pay him more than $3 million a year. Um, one reason I said partly no to lead off this question is that while Colorado's in better shape financially right now, they're still not in a position to get in a bidding war with, with you know, some of those other programs that really do have those incredible financial means. I mentioned Oregon's facilities, and they, they poached Jim Levitt, their defensive coordinator, a couple of years ago, because uh, they could pay him $1.2 million as a defensive coordinator. Colorado just wasn't going to do that. Uh, Levitt's now making $1.7 as as their defense coordinator at, at Oregon now. And, again, he's just not in a position to pay that much. Their current defense coordinator, DJ Elliott, makes seven hundred grand. I think that's probably on par with a lot of other Pac-12 programs. They they just can't, you know, throw out ridiculous salaries for assistant coaches. Uh, so, overall, I would say they're, they're in pretty good shape from a facilities and financial standpoint. But, uh, again, you're, you're not going to see them pay a head coach $6 million a year anytime soon. The, uh, so, uh, the athletic director, Rick George, tweeted out a couple of days ago. We end up retweeting it. He said, is there a better backdrop anywhere in the country for college athletics? Oh, if there is, I haven't seen it. What a beautiful day in Boulder. And it's like this mountain behind all the buildings and the stadium and snow and clouds and it's like it's pretty freaking awesome so i think that was one of those 300 days where it was nice <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah no it's just it's incredible looking back and, and i started covering the program in 2003 and standing out there in spring ball in the middle of a blizzard and it's i get there's some element to where it can toughen a football team up but in certain conditions, you're just really not getting anything functional done in practice. And, and that was the case at, at times. They do have this bulge field house, which is a total eyesore. It's got a really funky scent to it that they just need to demolish <laughs> that thing. Um, but you can't, I mean, you can't do anything in there. It's this tiny, it's this building, archaic building. And so they would sometimes go in there, but it just, yeah, until 2007, I mean, they were just unbelievably behind. So now that they have, that facility's all up on Folsom Field, it's all connected, brand new locker room and stuff. And now they're actually, 
able to, instead of just being so far behind, actually bring recruits in and, and really want to show that thing off. And I've been asking everybody this follow-up because we asked that first question kind of in context of program goals. What are those for Colorado? You know, because I, I, I think every school in the Pac-12 maybe has something a little bit different. USC obviously has those top-tier goals of, you know, winning a national championship every, you know, three times a year or whatever in football yeah. and all that kind of crap. What 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 is it for Colorado? What's the realistic program goal for football? Well, I mean, if you talk to Rick George, the athletic director, he's going to say competing for Pac-12 championships. Um, my opinion is, yeah, maybe every once in a while when when, when the, the moons align, maybe. But right now, I would just, again, just they, they – under John Embry not too long ago, I mean, they were the worst power conference team in the entire country. So I think right now it's just going to bowl games on a consistent basis. And again, they had that, it's not really an aberration. They had great senior leadership on that 2016 team and, and really brought it all together. But uh, so I don't think you're going to see those seasons consistently, but just getting seven and five, going to a bowl game more consistently, and then you kind of build it up from there. I, I think that's, the, that's the first step. I think long-term, I mean, there is a lot to sell with, with Colorado. I think you can, you know, out-recruit the Arizona schools. If, if you're in a position where you're actually winning on a consistent basis to be able to pull in those type of recruits, I think you can compete maybe every four or five years for a Pac-12 South. But again, I just, I, I don't know if that's realistic anytime soon. That's a good segue. You mentioned recruiting. That's the second part of Hithliday's question. So does Colorado have the first pick of the best recruits in the area? And how valuable is that pool of talent? Uh, and how is the school thought of by national recruits? Yeah, so Colorado is the only power conference program in the state. That is certainly a positive when they're recruiting in their backyard, but their backyard, the state of Colorado, ranks 33rd nationally in terms of blue chip recruits per capita. So that's only an average, you're looking at maybe 5 to 10 Pac-12 caliber players in the entire state each recruiting cycle. When you compare that to, to California or Texas, there's some high schools in those states that they're, they're <laughs> going to produce five power conference signees in a given year. So naturally, Colorado has to recruit those two states, Texas and California, as you know, kind of its bread and butter. But they're at a major disadvantage there just because you're a thousand miles away from Los Angeles. You're a thousand miles away from Houston. So any kid in Texas or California that's looking to stay close to home is probably going to narrow Colorado from consideration. So they got to go then, you know, target the recruits that are looking to experience something different. And then, yeah, you get them out to Boulder. And before you even have to make a sales pitch, they see the flat irons on that drive down into town. Um, and, and I know that 18-year-old recruits are going to have a different criteria for picking a place to live than, you know, an adult. But you, you hear other college football writers talk about Boulder as being one of their favorite places, if not their favorite place to go cover a game. So I've always kind of said that if the Buffs can – get a recruit on campus, they kind of have that puncher's chance. Uh, and it's worked. I mean, the, one of their top signees this last recruiting cycle, Frank Phillips, flat out told Colorado staff, hey, I'm not he's – he's from the Houston area. He said, I'm going either to, to Baylor or Rice. I'm not going to Colorado. And they just kept working on him, and they convinced him to come out to visit. And by the end of that trip, he had Colorado as his favorite. So you'll find those situations. But, again, you're still a 1,000 miles away from some of those recruiting hubs, that, that, and you're recruiting against – other Pac-12 programs, they can, you know, those kids can get in the car and, and get to in, you know, under an hour in a lot of cases. So that, that's tough on them uh, for for the out-of-state recruiting. I do think that 
now that these official visits are going to be allowed in the late springtime through early summer, that's going to help, I think, Colorado, just because you look at it, the weather in December and January oh, yeah. in Boulder is obviously going to be a crapshoot. But, hey, you bring them out in May or June, it's usually pretty beautiful in Boulder that time of year. I, I honestly don't think there's a place I'd rather be that time of year. So uh, you bring a kid out to Boulder in June and then he go visits Tempe or Tucson, you know, a couple other Pac-12 South programs you're competing with for recruits every year. Uh, I, I think that's going to help them going forward. Uh, but again, they're just at, at a disadvantage, not having a ton of talent in their backyard and then having to get these kids to hop on a plane and fly quite a, quite a ways to, to come out to visit. When, when Colorado, and you know, if you don't have the full background on this, that's completely understandable, but when Colorado was doing really, really well between, you know, like 89 and whenever Rick Neuheisel started to tank the program in the late 90s. Uh, <laughs> that's just my little dig at Rick Neuheisel. I have to throw one in every show. It's, just a, it's contractual obligation. Um, but when, when they were doing so well, uh, what was the formula for them? Like, what, 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 were, what did the makeup of those teams look like in terms of recruiting regions, and how was Colorado able to pull it off from a, from a talent acquisition standpoint? Yeah, they, they recruited Los Angeles, and they recruited Houston, and they recruited New Orleans, like Cordell Stewart, uh, Eric right. the Enemy, those, those type of guys. Uh, but that was Bill McCartney. He was uh, kind of a, a different type of guy, and, and it was a different environment back then. I think Colorado's tried to recruit the South a little bit. They had some previous assistants that had ties out there, and it just – even if they could get a kid to sign, it sometimes didn't pan out. That kid would come out and get homesick or – it's just it's a little bit different environment now. You know, the kids in the South, you know, just have SEC, SEC dreams. You know, and maybe the pack in Boulder, Colorado, just isn't attractive to a lot of those kids. And again, that distance is there, and so you can find a, a kid here and there, but you just can't base your whole recruiting around that. Again, going back to Bill McCartney, he was just a phenomenal recruiter, and they started having success, and it just kind of built on itself. And he uh, had a lot of great coaches come through. Boulder, you know, Gary Barnett, Les Miles, a, a long list of guys that, that helped Colorado to the heights that it was. And, you know, it's not to say that Colorado can't ever get back there, but it's just going to be, it just, it's going to be such a hard battle to, to get back in that situation. They, Mike McIntyre has done a good job from a foundational standpoint and he's, his classes have had good depth, but he's just not that type of salesman like a Bill McCartney was. Adam, the uh, so all the schools have different advantages when you're going to bring someone on campus, uh, official or unofficial visitors. Um, you know, like the LA schools, you can take them to Hollywood stuff, whatever entertainment industry stuff. What is there some cool things that that you know they're able to do with recruits when you get them on campus, and maybe maybe it's different in the spring than it would be in the uh, in the winter. But I don't even could you take them skiing on an official visit? That'd be kind of cool. No, I think that isn't there like a a mileage limit and how far you can take kids on I, an official? I think so. Yeah, I think there's like... Or the, at the very least, you're, you're limited to 48 hours with them, right? So, yeah. yeah, it would be tough to take them up to, to the mountains. And I mean, I don't know how many how many of these recruits actually know how to ski to begin with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, it would have to be a real specific uh, thing, I would think. Like some guy that just loves skiing. Like, oh, we're going to take you skiing. Yeah. You can do this all the time here. You know? Well, I would t again, going back to my point, though, in, in May and June coming out here, I mean, the weather, it's its so awesome. And you, you take them up to the Flatirons and you show them an overlook of, of, of the town. I mean, that's something that you're not going to get at a lot of other places, obviously. And uh, the hill and, and Pearl Street and just kind of the, the vibe around town in, in that time of year is pretty incredible. Um, I, I think 
you want maybe like a lot of schools, I'm sure you want to maybe try to get them while the students are still on campus a little bit, um, just because campuses can tend to be a little bit more of a ghost town in the summer. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's, I, I think that's really going to help them out when it's, you know, 75 and, and beautiful. And then, like I said, if they go down to Arizona and it's 110 degrees or, you know, 100 degrees at that point, probably, uh, I think that helps you. Uh, so yeah, that, that should help them in terms of the really official visits now going forward. All right, Ryan, should we move on to the third question? Yeah, yeah let's get to politics. So this is the politics question. Uh, does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? And how would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders? Well, from a divisional st- division standpoint, I would say that the academic side and athletic side have always, and will probably always have kind of an adversarial relationship in Boulder. Uh, a big part of that is the state of Colorado ranks in the bottom five for higher education state funding. So you've got limited money, and you know, Colorado has an expensive space and science program, so they're going to be fighting over financial resources. Uh, we, kind of looking back a little bit, when Colorado's athletic department had to borrow money from the university to, to buy out some contracts, they had to buy out Gary Barnett's contract when they fired him and then Dan Hawkins' contract, you really saw the animosity from the academic side but actually, uh, this year, for the first time, they're going to be able to have assistant coaches on multi-year contracts. In the past, there was a, a state law that limited them to just six multi-year contracts within the entire athletic department. So, I mean, you, you start cutting it up. You got the AD, football coach, the the two head basketball coaches, the volleyball coach. That leaves you just with one remaining contract, and, and they would typically give it to to one of their coordinators. But that made it tough on them, you know, in terms of bringing in assistant coaches and, and retaining them. There was a new state legislation that was actually adopted just last year, and so there's no longer that limit on the number of multi-year contracts. And just two weeks ago, they had 20 new multi-year contracts that were approved, and 10 of those were multi-year contracts for football coaches, even their their strength and conditioning coaches now on a multi-year deal. So uh, Mike McIntyre actually had a press conference today just in advance of Spring Bowl talking about how that's a, a really big deal for him. Um, it's just tough if if these coaches want a little bit of security, and if you are basically have them on a month to month month to month contract, and Oregon calls, and they did lose. They, they not only lost Jim Levitt, they lost their, one of their defensive backs coaches, Charles Clark. He goes there on a two year deal, and so now they can finally be on kind of a level playing field. Maybe they can't outbid an Oregon, but they can at least now offer these multi year contracts. So that, so that's a big deal for them going forward. Um, in terms of administration support, Bruce Benson is their their current president, and he's done a pretty good job of supporting the football program uh, basically since they hit rock bottom. I think when Dan Hawkins had them going five and seven in kind of that, that range and they weren't a laughing stock, it wasn't as big a deal to him. It was kind of like, okay, you know, but then they hit rock bottom and he couldn't walk down the street without people whining about the football program, he said, okay, it's time to actually give them the support they need. And, and he certainly helped with the whole facilities project. Um, but, yeah, I mean, th- there's just, again, going back to the animosity between athletics and academics, there was a Board of Regents meeting here recently when those multi-year contracts were approved. And there was a Regent, Jack Kroll, he was whining about the salaries of the coaches and talking about, talking about how it would be better served on the academic side. And there was another Regent that wouldn't even vote, they, you know, that she abstained from voting on that. So, it's pretty baffling. I mean, for people like us that, that understand what a successful football program can mean for a university, 
Um, so again, academics versus athletics, instead of the two working hand in hand, they're, they're kind of working against each other at times. And I'm sure it's like that at a lot of schools, but it's definitely very prevalent in Boulder. Um, in terms of the fan base, Colorado has a pretty solid group of, of diehard fans, uh, but that casual fan base is pretty darn finicky. I mean, uh, again, I think that's probably the case with a lot of Pac-12 fan bases. There, there's a lot to do here. So, uh, you know, if Colorado's battling for the Pac-12 South title like they were a couple years ago, they they play Utah at home, and that that place is Folsom Field is rocking. It's packed. But uh, you know, if they're in last place, those casual fans are going to be on the ski slopes. So, uh, uh, what else is there in terms of uh, one interesting thing with them? joining the Pac-12, obviously the the, uh, the fundraising, it helped there. It helped from a road trip standpoint. I certainly enjoy covering games in Seattle and, and Palo Alto more than I do uh, games in Lubbock and Ames. But one, th- one thing that's that's kind of a bummer in terms of them coming into, into the Pac-12 is that they've lost some of those rivalries that they had in the Big 12. And they just don't have that in, in the Pac-12 now. They, they call at the Rumble in the Rockies when, when they play the Utes, but I mean, there's no bad blood there. So it's, it's really forced. And, and they have that game with Colorado state that should probably be, be more of a rivalry than it's been, but Colorado fans just don't want to really accept the mountain West team as a true rival. And even that game is going to have a hiatus coming up. So I would say that's one of the bummer with them joining the PAC 12. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess from a, a big picture standpoint to kind of wrap this up, uh, the, the Colorado's in a better place financially and from a facility standpoint, but uh, you know, they, they've, they've certainly got a lot of challenges uh, in their way in trying to become a, a top 25 program again. Adam, sort of follow up on the fan base part, uh, you know, talking about Utah, um, you know, Dan was talking about going from being a have not to a have, you know, it was a big deal going to a power five conference for Colorado is different. You went from one power five conference to another and when you have a national championship within the lifetime of, you know, middle age or whatever fans that you know, they were around for that, if you're in your 40s or something, you know, you, you were, you've been there for a national championship. I'm curious about what the fan base is like. Like you said, the diehards are diehards. Are those the people that were around and they, they've seen this team win a championship? They know what it was like and the, the McCartney era and all that kind of stuff. And has it changed at all going from, the, you know, the, you know, the big 12 to the Pac 10 or, and then, you know, Pac 12, where, like you said, some of the rivalries are gone and maybe you lose some of that passion that, that some of the fans had at least. Well, it's interesting. Those fans that were around in the heyday back in the nineties, they, they still hold on to that and, and they see the program that they cheer for or their, their alma mater as, as the program that should be there again but then you have this other younger group of fans that have come up that have seen a lot of bad football, but they've, whether it's because they went to see you or for whatever other reason that they've, they've become a diehard fan, their expectations are so different. They're, you know, they, they're happy going to a bowl game. So we have really heated debates on our message board just because you have these different generations of fans that have different expectations. Um, so that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think moving to the Pac-12 really affected that too much. Um, I, I don't think if you pulled Colorado fans, I would say something about 80% of them like the move to the, the Pac-12 just from road trip standpoint. And um, and maybe eventually some of these rivalries will, will start to bud. But, yeah, I mean, the, the fan base, again, is, is kind of splintered into these different generations, to, to your point, just because 1990 – 
for, for some fans, doesn't seem that long ago, and some others weren't even alive then. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it's just kind of interesting, the, the dynamic uh, and in some of the debates that come up just from different fans having different expectations. Does that well, answer great. your question, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I, okay. Because there's not when you mention that, like, yeah, how many Pac-12 schools have won a national championship in like your lifetime? You know, it's it that's kind of a rare thing. People might forget about it, but it's not. You know, it wasn't that long ago. I can, I can tell you, yeah. UCLA has not. <laughs> I can I can tell you it that depends how old you are, Dave. Like, are you, I don't I don't know your you age. Could, you could nearly double my lifespan, <laughs> nearly, and UCLA has not. <laughs> Good stuff. That's yeah. great. Um, what, one other thing, Dave, if we can do a follow-up, because I'm kind of curious why, but the first Pac-12 school, my understanding, to start spring football will be Colorado tomorrow on Friday. We're, we're recording this on Thursday, the 22nd. So the 23rd of February is when Colorado kicks off spring football, which is, it seems like an interesting decision, but you know, maybe some thoughts on that, Adam. Yeah, I guess – for us, at least in Boulder, it should be, I guess, winter ball. <laughs> it's, it's not spring yet. They actually were going to start it, uh, was it a week and a half ago, a week ago? Uh, but their defense coordinator had hip surgery, so they pushed it back just a little bit. No, it's interesting. Mike McIntyre comes from the David Cutcliffe coaching tree, and uh, Cutcliffe started doing that at Duke. And McIntyre talked to him about it, bended his, bend his ear about it, like, why, why are you doing that? And, I mean, the, the number one reason is – if you get a guy with an ACL or a major injury during spring ball and you have it earlier, there's a lot longer for them, obviously, to recover in, until camp starts or the, the football season. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and then, you know, I think now with and then with uh, recruiting, you can kind of jump into that more into the spring if you, if you have your spring game already out of the way. So that's kind of the, the thought process there. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that – McIntyre really likes that idea, and, and they have had some injuries in previous spring balls where it's really worked out well for them to you know give that player some extra time to get back. That is such a very perfectly, like, completely sensible, logical thing that David Cutcliffe absolutely would have been the one to start. Like that, <laughs> that completely makes one hundred percent sense. Both that the piece makes sense and the fact that it comes from Cutcliffe, one hundred percent. Yeah, McIntyre, that's, again, that's his coaching tree. They actually brought Kurt Roper on as their new quarterback's coach. He comes from that, that coaching tree as well. And so uh, I don't think Cudcliffe gets enough credit. He's at Duke, so people aren't really paying close attention. But he is definitely a, a smart football coach with some good ideas. Awesome. Sure. Well, uh, so, we, you know, Dave, we might want to get, maybe we have Adam and the rest of the, the crew, when, when spring ball starts, they can, like, leave us a voicemail a couple minutes or something, and we can yeah. play them, like like spring football, like, you know, week one recaps or something like that. Just kind of get it up. If you'd be willing to do that, Adam. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm a big fan of this podcast. I appreciate you guys for, for taking time out. Do you, do you guys ever get sick of hearing your own voice? Though? So some of these go on for a couple hours. <laughs> uh, we probably get sick of listening to each other, but not ourselves. Yeah, okay. no, I, okay. I, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do this if we didn't like hearing ourselves just talk and talk and talk endlessly. But it's, it's well, a lot more fun. It. It's good content for us across the network. Yeah, and it's I mean it's it's a lot of fun. Like no one does it. Um, yeah. you know, we just kind of came up with the idea, and the fact that we had such a strong network at Scout, um, and then you know now with two four seven, it's pretty much the same. But um, it's nice to have you know basically the best site in all the you know all twelve schools as part of our network. So it's it's kind of cool. It gives us a lot of opportunities. So 
I don't know. Yeah, hopefully it works out well. We're actually doing off-season shows now where we just, instead of taking like six months off, we're doing shows again. Yeah. Is it twenty? Is it twenty? Do we do we work for twenty four seven sports or two four seven sports? I've heard both ways. <sighs> I think it's twenty four seven sports. I, okay. I I think I used to call I, it two four seven. I I'm I'm a strong proponent of just pronouncing all of the numbers. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't see a backslash in there, so why should I say twenty four seven? Right. We should probably know this, right? I mean, this is who we get our paycheck from. <laughs> exactly. But I think I used to say two four seven before, which maybe I don't know if it was a bit of a knock, but. They, the people that we now work for say 24 seven. So that's what I'm trying to do. Dave, you know, ever the contrarian, uh, will keep doing what he wants to do. Absolutely true. <laughs> okay. Well, follow him on Twitter, uh, Adam CM 777 on Twitter. And it's, of course, you can go to buffstampede.com. Nobody covers Colorado better than Adam Muster Tiger. He just does a great job. And, uh, we appreciate you coming on, Adam. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. It's Adam. Well, that was fun. Um, I can't believe we got everyone together and we, we, we took care of it, Dave. It's pretty cool. It was a, a really good report from, uh, Dan and Adam on the mountain schools. Yeah. Felt very good. And I, I think like this is the one where it really felt like there were very meaningful differences between the two programs we were talking about. And it feels like there was real differentiation between Utah and Colorado. I think it kind of, and I think those are two programs that are relatively new to the Pac 12. So, you know, gives everyone else out there a little bit more insight into, you know, what those what the unique challenges and opportunities are for those two programs. All right. Well, that's the Pac-12 South. We wrap that up. So, hey, Pac-12 North pubs, you got to bring it because I think everyone did a good job. I mean, obviously we did when we did our show, but like the other guys are pretty good, too. So we got the Pac-12 yeah, they North were fine. Pubs. They were yeah. fine. I mean, obviously we were the stars, <laughs> as we always are, but they were fine. They were all fine. Um. All right. Well, should we jump into some questions and uh, wrap this one yeah. up? Nice. Yeah, we've got some questions. So um, this is from Jeremy. Uh, Pack 12 quarterbacks in the NFL. Hey, Ryan and Dave. With the NFL draft coming up and at least two Pack 12 quarterbacks expected to be chosen early, I have a couple of questions. Looking 10 years from now, which of the Pack 12 quarterbacks drafted since 2015 we thought of as the best? Who are your top five Pack 12 quarterbacks currently? Where would Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen would fall after a year or two? Well, geez. So we have to know. Well, like... a lot. So, all right. Uh, PSA to everyone out there. Whenever you're asking us to remember stuff, <laughs> uh, just understand that you're really asking us to just fail miserably. Give us a prompt. Give us a list of which Pac-12 quarterbacks have been drafted yeah. in the last two years. Like, top of your head, who who was drafted that did well? Like, I'm trying to think. Oh, man. Um, who was drafted? Um, what, okay. uh, Hunley. Hun, what? Brett Hunley. Brett okay. Hunley. He started some games for Green Bay this year. Okay. okay. Uh, um, Cody Kessler started a little bit. That was, well, I guess it's 2015. So he, he had a couple starts in Cleveland Kevin, and stuff. Has Kevin Hogan done anything at, uh, in the NFL? I don't believe so. Um, All right. Arizona guys. Anybody from Arizona that we're thinking of off the top of our heads? No. ASU. Um, who's the last, like Brock Osweiler, Kelly, Brock Osweiler, um, Mike Bercovici, none of those guys, Burko. I don't, uh, Brock Osweiler, but that was before 2015. Yeah. Um, Colorado or Utah guys. God, this has got to be riveting podcast. I know. I'm sorry. It's just like, you have to just kind of us, think about it. just us trying to think like just 
verbally think. And then there's going to be someone um, like, oh, you idiot, you forgot Aaron Rodgers. Like, there's going to be some awesome quarterback that, like, we didn't name from Utah or something. When, like, did, oh. when did Mariota graduate? Was that 2014? Uh, I think 2014 draft. Yeah, he's been, I think he's been in the league at least three years. Um, so probably not. Maybe him. that's why he picked 2015, but I don't, I mean, who was the guy for Washington State before Luke Falk? I mean, that was before 2015, too, so that doesn't count. Yeah, Luke Falk's been uh-huh. there for seven years, so he's been quite Either a while. we're really bad at this or we're, we're, oh, oh, Jared Goff. Yeah, Jared Goff would be, we haven't got the Cal yet. I was tr- we're trying to go through the schools, but Goff would be the biggest one. And then uh, even Webb, right? Webb's on a team. Um, or um, also, uh, what's his face? Uh, the Oregon's Sean Mannion. He's in the NFL. But I think that's been, I thought he was longer than 2015. But, you know, he was he was in the mix with the Rams for a while. Um, and, it, you I know, I, Sean Mannion. Let's look. Yeah. Up. See what year he was. But he, he was like kind of the third guy, but then they end up basically, yeah, they, they had, they got rid of the guys in front of them, but they all d- end up doing well, like Foles. And uh, so Nick Foles is like, that was, you know, several years ago, but. Okay, well, we can't answer your first question, so we're going to move on. Uh, and so then, so looking 10 years from now, which of the Pac-12 quarterbacks drafted since 2015 will be thought of as the best? So is this including guys who we haven't even seen in an NFL uniform yeah, yet? Let's, let's not include the ones we haven't seen yet. I mean, I mean, it's going to be Jared Goff then. Yeah, right? I think it would have to be Goff um, if you're talking about since 2015. I, I mean, just the, the, the turnaround that he had with the Rams and showing that if you have like a – defensive-minded coach versus, like, a young, innovative offensive-minded coach, like, how different you could be. Now, you grow from year one to year two, but, I mean, he just looked like a different dude. Yeah, and then he says, who are your top five Pac-12 quarterbacks currently? So, I guess this is Pac-12 quarterbacks in the NFL. Is that I think that's what you would mean. Interpreting yeah. this? So, uh, Aaron Rodgers, number one, right? Yeah, he has to be one, because he's, you know, he might be the best quarterback Um you want, yeah. count, you want to count Tom Brady since he came from California? No, we won't do that. No, uh, <laughs> no. We don't count him for anything. Uh, um, I mean, could Goff be too? Foles? Um, Goff, Foles. Um, who else is good? Andrew like, Luck. Yeah, Luck. Would pro- well, he you know he didn't play last year, but I would still Marcus, put him. Marcus Mariota. Be- yeah. I would probably go Luck too. I think I like him a lot. Injuries, the injuries kind of drop him for me. I'd go Mariota. I think he's saddled with a horrible scheme with the Titans, but I think he's still been pretty impressive when, especially when he's been able to kind of like towards the end of the season this year when he was just kind of running his own stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can go luck number two, just off like body of work so far. And, you know, hopefully he gets healthy soon. I might even do golf ahead of uh, Mariota, but I don't know. Well, Goff's had one good year in a good scheme. Right. I'd like to see a little bit more. I think Mariota's been saddled with some bad stuff in the Titans. I still think talent-wise, he's better than Goff. Um, but yeah, let's call them 3-4, whichever okay. you know, flip you want to do. Um, and then, any other starters that we're missing? Off the top well, of the, we mentioned someone else that I'm. Uh, we just mentioned. I forgot who we Nick did. Nick Foles. Nick Foles. Nick Foles, yeah. Fol- whatever, uh, you just won a Super Bowl. Let's call right. him number five. Yeah. Done. I like it. <sighs> I and mean, then so, where would Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen fall after a year or two in? It's just so hard to tell. You just don't even know. No like, idea. It depends on, like, as we just discussed, it depends on the situation. Jared Goff was terrible his first year and then very good last year. And what changed? Basically the coach. That's 
basically it. Yeah. Um, so if they walk into a good situation, they could be top two. I don't think I don't think anyone is solidly number one except or solidly placed except for Rogers, who's going to be number one for as long as he's in the NFL. Um, but I think they could slide in anywhere behind him, depending on what situation they fall into, right? I would think so. Yeah. Um. It's just, you know, and, and we apologize now if we forgot somebody huge that, you know, oh, can't believe you didn't mention blood. We, we 100% did. Yeah. Like 100%. <laughs> and I blame the question asker, not us. Yeah. Like nobody's paying us for remembering stuff. Like right. This. Nobody's paying us at all. And we don't usually like, unless it's a Hitler Day question where we have to like, you know, research and, and have a whole series of podcasts about like, we're not yeah. reading the head of and like no, coming no. up with. <laughs> so there's a, there's yeah. very minimal preparation that goes into this <laughs> I mean it's lucky I think this week we weren't even doing anything and I'm like I said I, this is total Dave like sent Dave an email sent him a text hear nothing and then he responds to some tweet about something else and I'm like Dave we we, we got to talk about the podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing it's like um it's like introducing food to a child you have to ask them like four or five different times before they'll try it Nice. You have to introduce a piece of communication to me about four or five <laughs> different ways before I'll actually respond to it. Nice. All right. Shall we move on to uh, Keith's question? Yeah, let's do it. He said, hey, Ryan and Dave, it is not uncommon at this time of year for Hope Eternal to spring for Pac-12 programs as they look towards the next season. Uh, it's some of uh, it said it's uh, OK, I guess in some of the recent podcasts. I've heard both of you mention that a certain program should win so many more games next season. For example, you mentioned Arizona should should win 8 to 10 games next year. Uh we had actually some Arizona takes people didn't like some of our our Nobody our, nobody likes our Arizona takes. Yeah, like people think we we are high on Arizona uh or they don't like it. Um, anyway, so while we would all like to wish for our team to do well, everyone can't finish 8 and 1 or 6 and 3 in conference as Larry Scott would maybe think. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if some of these teams were to make a jump, at whose expense do you see that happening? If Oregon State and Colorado weren't going to be the cellar dwellers this year, who would be? Thanks, Keith and Oakland. Mm, this is a good question. Yeah, like so. Yeah, you're right. If Arizona takes a jump, uh, who's taking a dump in the Pac-12 South, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously, the cellar dwellers this past year were Oregon State and Colorado. So if they were to make a leap, so if Oregon State was to suddenly get to six and six, which I don't think is going to happen, but if they were, who's maybe going to be worse than people think? I guess is the question. Uh, you know, obviously unfortunate circumstances, but I think there's a chance Washington State, especially with the coaching turnover. Um, also, you know, they do have, uh, they don't have a quarterback at the moment. Um, and they've had a bunch of coaching turnover, like their entire defensive staff, a um, bunch of guys uh, just across the board. I, I would say that's a candidate um, to take a step back. Um, who else? No, everyone's uh, going to be eight and one. Like I like Larry Scott's plan. Like it's just everyone's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Everyone <laughs> will be eight and one. Uh, no. I think the math checks out. He would like everyone to be five and four or four and five. Like everyone be exactly, yeah. you know, there's a, oh, I, Parody. Um, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Arizona state as a possibility here. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, like, you know, people are going to hate me. Like, I think 
USC has some potential problems because we just don't know. You talk about Sam Darnold, like was he magic in a bottle that that won you a bunch of games or uh, and and we have to like maybe we do a live show for the uh, combine because I know Dave's going to be watching when he gets his hands <laughs> measured and see how uh, big. Should I, should I just record my live reaction to his yes. hands being measured at like seven and three quarters? <laughs> That would be that would be really good. I mean, USC might. The announcer's like uh, his hands have measured seven and three quarters, and they are secreting a um, <laughs> sort of gel-like substance. It's very slippery. But it, it might not just be like one team. Like you know, if USC doesn't win ten games and they lose a couple, you know, maybe that's one of those wins Arizona picks up. They get an upset over USC or something. So I, I don't think it has to be a team completely tanking. Um, you know, a team doesn't rise back up where you know Colorado rose up. They kind of came back down. If they kind of stay there, um, I mean, or, or one, you know, one win less. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of that too. Yeah, I could absolutely see that. Um, yeah, it could be like more teams coalescing towards the middle. Um, and that allows it Which, a little bit because everyone can go four and five or five and four. Yes, yes. Larry's got to love that. Definitely checks out there. Yeah. So nice. Yeah, good question there. Yeah, it was very good. Um, all right. Um, so this is from uh, Hifliday, our man. All right. I sympathized with Biggin's struggle last week as he ran out of unique adjectives to describe recruits. It reminded me of this one-minute clip from the movie Moneyball where the scouts are sitting around discussing the subjective quality of prospects. Hopefully you can play the audio on the podcast. Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> that's not happening. I would have had to do that uh, ahead of time. Sorry, but... I could try. I mean, I could try to do it while you're talking, but. Uh, People can look it up. Go look it up. Um, It's a, it's a one minute clip from the movie Moneyball. Scouts sitting around discussing the qualities of uh, prospects. Um, The scene is played for laughs. The old timers being so thoroughly unscientific in player evaluations, but I wonder if this is a serious problem with high school football scouts. Can I get you boys to talk about the recruiting world's epistemology? I love expanding Ryan's vocabulary. This is the question of how do you know that what you know is true? Uh, what methods are used to review previous year's evaluations to see if they panned out properly? How is the process improved upon? What stats and observations are reliable? What previously important metrics have been discarded? What would you guess is the next big thing to look at? And what is big now, but you think is going to get tossed out in the future? I think my oh, brain, wow. My brain so it's a great question. Hey, we're already doing like six podcasts in your name, and you got to throw stuff like this at us. Come on, just man. keeps throwing good <laughs> topics out at us. Um, wow. I mean, it might be a better question for us to address to Biggins or Huffman yeah. next time we speak to them. Um, but I think uh, I know that they have certainly drawn some. I don't know. I don't know if comfort's the right word, but certainly some. You know support from the fact that if you're looking at NFL rosters, the, the, a much higher percentage of people um, commensurate to how many five stars there were a much higher percentage of, you know, four and five star guys end up NFL players uh, compared to the percentage of three star guys. Um, now me, I'm a, a, I am analytical to the point of um, I, I don't think anything is absolutely true. So I would point there and say, well, you can't trust NFL GMs completely either, and so they might be using whatever bias system previously to you know make their own judgments and evaluations rather than making a true evaluation. I mean, nobody nobody is making a purely objective uh, uh, 
framework for assessing any of this stuff. So it's all subjective. And so yeah. if they're all in error in the same way, then nothing is true and nothing is proven. Um, so I don't, basically, I don't think there's any method to completely prove that you have, everything is panned out correctly, but I think they take some solace in looking at NFL rosters and seeing a lot of the guys that they rated highly in high school turn out to be uh, pretty good NFL players. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think they keep like a log and they're, uh, you know, a batting average of, oh, right, well, this is a guy I stood on the, you know, uh, stood up for in the recruiting meetings, the ranking meetings. And I was right. He should have been higher than everyone said, but there's, I think there's a lot of like kind of specific examples that come up and it's, it's discussed for sure. Hithliday. So, um, if you're going to like the opening and we're up there and like Huffman's there, or Biggins, or whatever, you're talking with them and you see a quarterback that reminds you of somebody else and you, they'll start talking about, yeah, you remember him. He was so good. He threw for all those yards and we put him as a five star and he just really was terrible when he got, he just couldn't do it at the next level. Or, you know, remember seeing this guy, remember Tua Tagovailoa and, and, you know, I didn't think he was all that good early on in the, the Nike camp tour and then, he, he's a guy that seemed to get better, uh, you know, as he got closer to the end of his senior year and obviously, you know, won Alabama national championship already. So he's been good. But I think there's a lot of specific examples that get discussed and talked about. I don't know if they go through and say, all right, I was wrong about this guy. So, um, now I need to change the way I think of things. I think it's just more about it's, it's a lot of just feel. I don't think there's as much analytics, at least for the guys that like, you know, do it at high school, you're seeing so many guys and it's not your job to like, I mean, you want to be accurate, but it's not like you're a, an NFL scout or a baseball scout or something. Like if you screw up a couple of times, you could get fired. Um, I think if there was a whole bunch of screw ups, they would like probably rethink, huh, what, you know, maybe my methodology there, but these guys have been doing it for so long. I think they just have their kind of way. They see a dude, maybe it reminds them of somebody else. And they'll think back to that. And you're like, Oh, that guy, really wasn't as good as I thought he was when he was in high school. So maybe it gives them pause, but I think it's just kind of like that, all that data in their head that they're putting together more of my guess is more of a feel than, you know, they're, they're writing everything down of everyone they've ever seen. Yeah. And I, this is by no means my area of expertise. And these guys are a hundred percent better at it than I am. But the few times like I've been, you know, and you've probably had this experience too, where you're watching some random seven on seven a game and it's almost subconscious when you see like you know one of the younger guys you've never seen before and you see him just do something yes. and you're like oh that reminded me of something and i'm not sure who it was but now i'm going to watch that kid and then you start seeing other things stand out and that can be kind of a way it happens where you're just you know you're just watching and um and and something just pops out to you and then you pay a little bit closer attention and then you see more things that pop out to you and i think it is a lot of comparison it's a lot of okay, what have I seen before that looks like this? And how does that compare? And, you know, it might not even be a fully like conscious process. You're just kind of like, oh, okay. Um, and I don't, and to Ryan's point, I don't know that there is a good statistical framework for assessing prospects. I think you can use it to, you know, I think it's a, a you know, if you're going down the stat lists of, you know, the running backs in California and you see who is just kind of topping the charts and yards per play and all that kind of stuff. I think that can give you a list of guys to go look at. Yeah. But I don't think you're making any kind of judgments based off statistics because first that's all system based and it can be level of play based. It can be so many different things that have very little to do with the, the person as a prospect. Um, and I mean, you see that at the college level too. 
I mean, uh, I'll use another example just because this is what I know, but UCLA, uh, Soso Jamabo, uh, their starting running back um, this past year, he averaged six yards a carry his first year at UCLA. Then he averaged under four yards a carry his second year. And then he averaged five yards a carry this past year. What changed each of those three years? Just the scheme. He didn't change as a runner. He wasn't suddenly, you know, he didn't suddenly tear his ACL. It's just the scheme changed. Um, and I think that, you know, you can't, you just can't use stats that way. I think measurables work to a greater extent. Like you can, you know, there's, there's certain things you want to look for in an offensive tackle, or there's certain things you want to look for in a defensive tackle or so on and so forth. Um, but even that, uh, you know, they're outliers. Um, and I don't think you can use those as a pure, you know, objective, like, okay, if, a you know, if a cornerback is under 5'7", he can't play. Well, no, there's examples of cornerbacks who are super short and can play. And, you know, if a, if a, I don't know, uh, if a quarterback is under six feet, he can't play. But of course there are, there are possibilities that, you know, he can play Drew Brees or Russell Wilson. Those are exceptions, but um, I think it, it, it just, I think a lot of it just comes down to watching and comparing and basing it off of history of watching these guys. And I think, the, the people who are generally really good at it are people who've been doing it a while. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's like baseball because I think baseball much more, um, I'm getting long winded here, but baseball, it trended a lot more towards the analytics and statistics because baseball is math. Like that's yeah. what baseball is. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is, you know, you're, uh, it's an athletic sport, but like so much of it is a numbers game. Um, you know, how good is this guy at, you know, getting on base, um, and how good is this guy at getting extra base hits? And, you know, how many, you know, essentially total bases are these guys getting on average? Um, and it's been a refinement of what statistics to value. Um, football is much more, I mean, baseball is at its heart, an individual game. It's the batter against the pitcher. Football is not that football is 11 guys working in concert against 11 guys working in concert. And it's impossible to truly truly isolate independent statistics um in that sport that's why you see a lot of the analytics for football are much more team-based they're much closer to um you know per play statistics per drive statistics than um you know i i think those are more you know they're an easier way of judging things analytically in football um and you see some attempts at individual statistics that matter i think you know, pro football focus does about as good a job as you can do yeah. uh, in isolating these things. But even still, I think it's a, it's kind of a fool's errand to, to completely go whole hog on that because I think even then you're you, so many things that happen to an offensive tackle in isolation are because of things that are happening at other points on the line. His attention is focused on something else. He's, you know, got to keep his eyes over here while he's trying to block this guy. And I, I just think, there's a lot more that goes into it than necessarily uh, be isolated in a single statistic. So I think it would be cool to talk to Biggins or Huffman or Blair about like the recruiting world's uh, epistemology or however you say that. Um, is that is it epistemology? That was close. And I, 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 it's one of those words that you only read. Okay, you don't say. You know, like you know those words. Like for me, when I was like eight, it was Mariner, and I pronounced it Mariner. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Because that's who I was. You're right. Yeah. But I think it would be cool to talk to them. But as far as like 
what do you think the next big thing to look at is going to be and what's going to get tossed out? I just don't know if that's going to – Maybe we'll hear what they say. That would be a curious question. But I don't think they're like, you know what? I really put all this emphasis on – it's not like they put an emphasis on winning games in seven-on-seven seven leagues. They, they put an emphasis on watching the dude play, you know. And statistics, really, when you're talking about – High school, all the right, all the star rankings, uh, it's about potential to like play in the NFL and the potential to advance. Nobody cares if some running back, some little running back that ran for 5,000 yards. I mean, Dave and I will get parents come up to us like, why isn't this kid getting recruited? He ran for 5,000 yards. Like that doesn't matter. Like if you watched him run and go, okay, that's cool that he ran for 5,000 yards, but he's not going to run in college. If that's what you think, then it doesn't matter that he ran for 10,000 yards. So, the stats and they're like, oh, this quarterback, he went, you know, 18 and one in league play over his three years. He started and it was a great leader. I'm like, yeah, but it, he's not that good. He's not going to play in college. It's, it's, I know it's kind of cruel, but all that stuff doesn't matter. Like you're not looking at high school t- statistics to figure out how this guy's going to play in college. One thing I'll say is, and I think this is already in the process of getting phased out a little bit, but height and quarterbacks. Um, that's something that I think should probably be more or less absolutely phased out by, you know, some date in the future, because it's based off of, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of how people play quarterback, where they think you're looking over the offensive line. And for the most part, you're looking between the splits. Um, so I don't, you know, there's, there's some definite reason not to be like five, six playing quarterback, um, because you're going to be looking through dudes hips then, but, um, (laughs) But I, I think the overemphasis on getting these statuesque quarterbacks who are six four, six five, I don't think that's, I don't think that's as important as people make it out to be. And I think our, I think the the, the people for two four seven do a great job of this. But I think it's still such a thing in like NFL draft rooms and so on and so forth that I just, I, I don't think height is that. I think it's a self selector for a lot of these kids at a young age. I think a lot of six foot tall quarterbacks and below are told. Hey, you got to find a different position or a different sport because you're never going to make it a quarterback. But um, I don't see. I mean, it, yes, there are exceptions, but why are there exceptions? Why is Russell Wilson an exception, and why is Drew Brees an exception? Is being six five necessary to play the quarterback position, or can you be five eleven or six foot? Um, and I, I think they've proven definitively that you can be. Which okay, then what are the reasons why being tall is better at quarterback? Uh, is it just because that means you have longer arms and you've got bigger hands? Because those are real reasons to have to be, yeah. you know, but if you're a five eleven guy with big hands and long arms, you can do it just as well as the six, four guy, you know, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there, there are areas of, of being, there are things that are related to being tall that are definitely important for playing quarterback, but the height itself, I don't think is one of them. Yeah. And I, I think it's like anything, you know, it's like a guy can be successful at five eleven. Maybe he's a little bit more successful if he happened to be six four. Like a guy could be successful with a, a medium arm strength and a you know, but he might be more successful if his arm was a little stronger. You know, it doesn't preclude yeah, like, you from like, being, you know, being a quarterback. Right. Right. You got, were you gonna take a shot at somebody that we know? Yeah, I, I was gonna say like Matt Fink, <laughs> but no, I, I yeah, I completely agree. Oh, I thought you were gonna go uh with our, our neighbors to the north. Um you know. <laughs> I could have. Jake I Browning. We, we yeah, I know. Jake, Jake Browning. Yeah. Good old noodle arm. I could have gone with. <laughs> no, but I'm moving on. I'm moving on to a new year. I'm turning the page. All right. You're gonna you know, be... We've got senior Jake Browning now, but I mean, Matt Fink can be competing for that for that starting job at USC. 
I'm curious to see for spring football, like how he does. I mean, he's he's got a lot better, I thought, since he got there, but that'll be something to watch. Okay, so in fairness, in fairness, I have I have seen him throw a ball twice in my life. Like (laughs) I've seen him at two different camps. He fluttered the ball at both, and so that's that's the entire basis of my evaluation of Matt Fink is based off of two camps from his junior year. So. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. But that's like to Hithliday's point. It's like, how do you do that? Well, you saw, like, if you see something in person, like if I yeah. saw a guy, you know, you don't get to watch every player. People ask, like, what is this guy that's on the scout team? Do? I'm like, dude, he's in a black jersey, like on the other side of the field. Like, I don't even know. You know, you can't. It's hard to watch everybody. You try. You got to get. You have to get decent at being able to make a kind of a snap judgment on somebody and like watching them. You know, yeah. take five snaps. <laughs> and if you happen to be like, if I, if Dave and I went to the same seven on seven tournament watching the same receiver and yeah. I saw him in one game where he had four drops uh-huh. and Dave saw him like make two one handed catches, like we're going to have a very different evaluation. We were at the same damn thing. And that's, that happens, you know? So it's like you have to do that, but we'd have to go a bunch of times. And, that's, and yeah. that speaks to why you have to at least make the attempt to make your evaluation based off factors other than pure results. Because if you are, like Ryan just said, if this guy makes, you know, if he drops the ball five times and I watched him, you know, attempt eight catches, if I'm just basing it off of whether he caught the ball or not, I'm going to say, wow, he's he's butt. But, you know, if you watch <laughs> him explode off the line or if you watch him in and out of his breaks, like what what is he able to do um, athletically? And so that's why you get into a lot of the subjective analysis that's like, you know, he's got really good feet or, you know, he... He's he's really quick out of his breaks. You know, he's got that quickness. And you'll hear, you know, all that time talking about like lateral quickness and all this other stuff. It's because you want to base it off of something that isn't purely and it's not pure luck. If a guy has bad hands, he has bad hands. And that's definitely a part of the evaluation with receivers, especially. But um, you don't want to just base it off of that because it can just be, you know, a bad couple of moments because even a guy with perfect hands isn't going to have a hundred percent catch rate. Yeah. And Uh, a a lot of the stuff that's interesting is when you watch enough of these, it's a camp setting and there's like, you know, position drills and there's lines. Well, dudes don't wait. Like, you know, the guys that cut in front and try to get as many reps as possible. I always love that, you know, and there's other guys that just kind of, that speaks to makeup. It speaks to like, okay, this guy's competitive as hell. Like Jack Jones in every single drill we ever saw, he would just jump to the front of the line, cut everybody, and just take another rep, take another rep, take another rep. And it's like, well, all right, this this like five nine hundred and forty pound shrimp really seems to care. This is cool. Um, and so I think that's when he kind of you know caught everyone's eye. And then you just saw this really competitive kid, and it was like, okay, wow, this kid's this kid can really play. And Jack Jones isn't like he's not a Dory Jackson level athlete, like, but no. he has a competitive streak that. You know, I think this stands out to people. And it's so funny that you, you say that and it immediately pops into my head. You know, Jack Jones is like a sophomore or junior or whatever he was when he was like 140 pounds, just jumping to the front of the line every yeah. single time. That's fine. And like a good example, maybe, and we've probably gone too long about this, sorry, but like Jalen Hall is a guy that you look at him. Oh, yeah. He looks like a five star wide receiver. And he was coming out a sophomore or junior year or whatever. But then just kind of drop down. You would see events and I would see him flash at certain events. And like, I would talk to Girardi. He's like, yeah, he's just not, he's dropping balls. He just doesn't seem that interested. And there was, there was definitely a fall there, but just 
your initial instincts, if you saw the dude, you'd be like, okay, that's a five-star wide receiver. But then you watch him over time, and it just kind of the ratings would drop and drop down a little bit. He yeah. just didn't. He ended up at Oregon, and who knows? He could end up being a really good player. But it just there there was something when you're watching him comparing to other guys. There wasn't that kind of fire there that these other guys had. Yeah, and a great example of this is two brothers, Equinemius St. Brown and Amon Ross St. Brown. Equinemius was 100% that guy. He was like a Jalen Hall. He looked the part. I mean, 6'4", 6'5", long arms, good athleticism, could make all the catches, but he would just hang back. He didn't, he, he didn't compete um, the way some of these other guys did uh, in drills and these situations. And then you've got his you know, younger brother, Amon Ra, who did and has all you know doesn't even I would say doesn't even necessarily have the athletic gifts of his older brother you've seen him more recently than I have but he doesn't have necessarily those same athletic gifts that same you know build and size but he competes hard play after play and I think that's significant there was man I can't think of the guy's name there was a receiver I believe he went to Notre Dame a couple years ago um Man, he was good, and uh, I liked him a lot, but then I think USC and UCLA just kind of backed off. He was like an Inland Empire kid. Shit, I can't remember his name. Um, Are you talking about Equinemius St. Brown? No, no, no. It wasn't from that group. It was oh, – oh, man, I can't I can't remember his name. But uh, Oh, 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 um, uh, the he, kid from Centennial. Yeah, he was – Corona Centennial. He was um, on uh, like B2G, like the, the best B2G team, I, I believe, and was always good, like tall kid. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's something with a J, but I can't remember it. Let me, let me Google it real quick. And uh, I loved I loved watching him, and I was like, man, what's going on? And uh, Javon McKinley. Javon uh, McKinley, yeah. yeah. And he was one of the most, I mean, productive, I think, receivers in California that year. Um, and I always thought he was pretty good, but, uh, yeah, he hasn't done much yet at Notre Dame and the, at yeah, all. I guess the USC and UCLA coaches didn't, weren't all that like they just weren't recruiting him that hard anymore i'm like what the heck i mean every time i saw him he was good i'm like i think that guy's good you know but whatever like it just for whatever reason that was production if you had to do stats for like the seven on yeah. seven he was like the mvp of everything you know like he was oh like, yeah <laughs> yep 100 percent. all right uh we have one from anthony hey ryan and dave should players be able to transfer with no penalty if their coach leaves or is fired and how do you feel about coaches blocking players from transferring to certain schools. Thank you from Anthony. Uh, yes, I believe that they should be able to transfer with no penalty if their coach leaves or has fired or for any other reason at all. Um, and then how do I feel about coaches blocking players from transferring to certain schools? Um, I think for an equitable system that makes sense, I think you should be able to block players from transferring to schools that will be on your schedule for the next two years. That seems, that seems reasonable. Um, I, I hate it when coaches kind of do it out of like, you're spite. not, yeah, spite you're not doing it with the player's best interest in mind. Um, I, you know, USC let like Amir Carlisle transfer to, you know, like, uh, Notre Dame, I think it was or whatever. He went, you know, end up going to Notre Dame and play. So they've seen that where they've transferred and played against you, uh, down the road. I, I could see either way on that, but. The whole um, transfer with no penalty, I, I get where people would be worried about. It would just be like free agency and everyone leaving, but it's it's not easy. It's not something I, you would see like a whole bunch of players do at once. Um, I wouldn't think, but it's not you know it's it's not super. I, I just don't think it would happen all that often. But I think you should have those options, and I think we're going to see more of it now. We saw it with Arizona, 
you know, Rich Rod getting fired after the early signing period. Like this is going to come up a lot more. So um, I don't know what the the best solution is, but I would te- I tend to lean towards like whatever's better for the players. I'd rather see. It. There's just so many things against the players. I'd like to see it, you know, pro player more more often than not. A hundred percent. That's where I stand. I think, and I think, um, you know, taking it to a place where they can transfer without penalty um, or with mild penalty or whatever it is. I think, um, you know, I think or with minor restriction. I should should say, um, you know, where. The, the, the school shouldn't be harmed by it. And maybe it's you have to announce a transfer by a certain period of time so that they can recruit. Maybe you have to announce it during the season so that they can recruit for your spot. I think that seems fair and, and equitable. Maybe you can't transfer, you know, in April after, you know, losing out on a spot in spring practice. I don't know. Maybe something like that. But um, something where they can, you know, find a replacement so that there isn't harm for, for either side. I think that makes sense. Um so figuring out some solution like that, I think, would be the, the ideal. Cool. But I think they should be able to transfer. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a pretty good one, Dave. <clears throat> yeah. Good stuff. Um, Tight show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we did a good job. I'm going to pat ourselves on the back. Now, um, if you're still listening, thank you. No, we didn't shill anything this podcast. So, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll wait another week or two. We'll do that. We'll We'll come back at you with something. Make sure you pay attention to what we're talking about, though. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know. Pay attention to our our our, our zip recruiter pitch. Yes, you got to hire anybody. You need Do it. Look, we just give him a little free plug there at the end. I like that. I did it. I did it because I am a fan of capitalism, and I feel like I should even push it even harder. Why do Why do I not believe that at all? But that's... I can't. I can't imagine why. <laughs> I can't imagine why you would think that I am not the biggest champion for our economic system among uh many people right well <laughs> awesome go capitalism uh let's see. so man we try not to be political i hopefully that's not political like no i i i i'm just championing our economic system right here right now yes. on this show awesome. all right that's all i'm doing yeah well not saying anything negative we appreciate the questions and hope you guys enjoyed uh hearing about utah and colorado not sure which schools we're going to go with next. We'll have to email people and see when they're available. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get something else going on, on the schedule, Dave, and, uh, start talking about the Pac 12 North and, uh, and pretty soon here's talk, talk about spring football. So that's going to be, that'll be fun too. Going to be so much fun. Awesome. All right. Well, that's David Woods. I am Ryan Abraham and we do appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to our little show, the podcast of champions. We love doing it. Hope you uh, love listening to it. Send us your questions. Leave us a five-star rating and some uh, some feedback on the iTunes. We'd love that stuff. We'll read it. Dave, make sure you check for next week. We'll uh, we'll read anything people leave. So um, thanks, Dave. Thanks to everyone else out there for listening, and we will talk to you next time.